Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. If someone you wouldn't endorse asked you for a recommendation, what would you say? In her lecture, I cannot tell a lie, or can I? Rabbi Avi Strausberg considers this question and more. Discussing the ethics around truth and lying, she presents multiple approaches to the topic and asks what to do when there may not be a clear answer. Let's listen in. The topic we're going to be jumping into today is around um, the ethics of how truthful we need to be. Um, do we always have to tell the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Or are there, in fact, moments where it's not only permissible to fudge the truth or to lie a little bit, but in fact, we might be obligated to lie. We might be obligated to conceal the truth. And if so, what are those circumstances? So the question is, you know, what, what are the ethics around lying and honesty? So I'll say for me, um, the starting point for this year is I was thinking about the ethics around giving um, recommendations for people. So let's say, not that any of us have ever been put in this um, particular situation, but you're asked to give a recommendation for someone for whom you, I would say, have neutral to less than neutral in a negative, sort of not so positive way of things to say about them. And the question is, um, what is the type of recommendation you give for that person? You know, not like they're not even, I'm not even saying they're on the level of they're the worst person you've ever worked with, but they're certainly not someone you would ever hire back or think anyone else should hire. And so the question is, um, how honest should you be? On one hand, we are commanded against falsehood. Um, we are commanded against Lashon Hara and slandered. And on the other hand, to tell the full truth is basically to slander someone. And so the question is, how do you, what are the ethics of giving a recommendation letter? How do you go about navigating that? So before we jump into the text, I wanted to throw the question out to you and see, are there circumstances that you found yourself in where you felt like you were in an ethical dilemma around to tell the truth or to not tell the truth or how truthful to be? And if so, what, you know, if you could share a little bit more about what that experience was. Yeah, Alex. So, so this actually happened very recently. I, I worked and I'm still working with a, uh, a candidate toward conversion who is a nice guy and, you know, but who sort of told these stories that I was like, like, you know, he owns an international business and travels here and there and has all these employees and, you know, money and spending. And I was like, okay, like, I mean, it doesn't affect me, but okay. And then I heard from from one or two people that this person was involved in some pretty shady lawsuits around rent and apartments and and um, and, and not paying an eviction. And and, uh, and I looked it up and saw that there were actual court records and and someone had asked me if they should go into business with this person earlier. And I was like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't see why not. He seems like a nice guy. So I, I was like, oh, well, on the one hand, you know, I know that there's some issues here. And the other, he did chuva, you know, and I, don't, I, don't, I never talked to him about it. And I went back and forth and I finally called the person I had recommended and said, you know, look, this came to light. And they said, oh, don't worry. I did my background search. And within five minutes, I said, no, thank you. Um, so it was a really fascinating. And, and it's still, you know, it's someone where like, in terms of the conversion, like their business stuff isn't really so relevant, you know, to the extent that I guess, you know, business is part of Jewish law and, and ethical business practice is part of that. But uh, I've been sort of weighing that still, you know, how do I balance what I know about him with, um, with my relationship with him? That's great. Have you learned the Chavetz Chaim on Lashon Hara? Uh, bits and pieces here. And there. Like he very much, the situation that he's going into is like about, do you recommend a business partner? You know, that they've had. So like, I, I don't know that if he would have given you the answer, but he definitely would have weighed in very heavily on the question. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Okay. Um, Irvin, were you raising your hand? 
I've often been called upon to uh, give references for others and uh, to ask for references for others. And I think it's a, the answer is Kalui. These are the sort of the judgment calls. One of the things I, you know, where, where it's 50-50, one of the things that I try to do is to find the positives and then to speak of, and I try to start with that, and then to speak of the challenges. I can think of a particularly difficult situation where our congregation is sued by, a, by somebody uh, who we think did so incorrectly and engaged in a lawyer. And, and basically my response, is, should anybody call, nobody has, but should anybody is, is that I think it's best for me not to comment. Um, feel free to contact our president, or at the very least to follow the guidance that, that many HR professionals say, which is um, I can confirm that this person worked here from date X to date Y. And Hamaskil Yamin, without saying anything more, I think that truth is, you know, sometimes people have a situation where it may not work out well with us, but it may have just been the wrong position or the wrong match. And, and I don't want to stop someone from having Parnassa because it wasn't a good for us. But try to be as truthful as I can about the challenges. Great. So Erwin, you said a lot of great um, things in terms of, and then we're going to see a lot of these. I want to pull them apart just because we're going to see them in some of the sources, um, but sort of the different strategies around one strategy being basically the silence of like, the just like the not commenting is one strategy of, you know, basically saying, I'm not, I'm not in a position to give a recommendation or I'm like, I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. Um, another strategy is to find the positive, like to go, you know, there may be specific negatives, but to find the positives that you can say and either leave out the negatives or to say the positives and then that allows you to say the negatives. Um, and the other thing, Erwin, that I just want to pull out that you said is the the recognition that you might have got that person in like the wrong perspective or in the wrong circumstance. And there could be other aspects of that person that you don't know about. And so then how do you not wanting to sort of overweight your own, you know, singular relationship with them, sort of throw off how, you know, the other positive aspects they might have had in other situations. So I'm going to call it, David has his hand raised virtually, which I didn't even know you could do, and then we'll go to Mark. So David? There's a season of the year when I get a whole bunch of um, requests for recommendations from the congregational rabbi for U.S. lawyers who want to run for office. Presumably, that's because they're deeply involved in, in their community, and uh, frequently not the case. And my ability to evaluate their work with their peers is next to nothing because I don't see them in, in regional activities with other U.S. wires. So I always give good recommendations because I believe that if they're invested enough to step forward, and take a leadership role, then they must care about this enough, even though it's not entirely evident that they connect to our community. And there are plenty of reasons why a teen might not want to connect to a community where the governors are four times their age. But still, it leaves me in a little bit of an awkward position because I cannot say in every element of the, rec of the reference, no grounds for judgment. Right. Okay, so the first text we're going to look at, I love this text. It comes from Masechet Sanhedrin. Um, it's a very sort of in the 
you know, in that, what I would say, I think is there's a lot of, as we're seeing in sort of some of the scenarios you brought up, I think that there actually is a lot of nuance around um, the ethics of speech and truth and lying and how truthful and when is actually being truthful hurtful. This text imagines a very black and white world around truth. And I just want to start with this text as a way of framing our conversation, sort of to push it to one extreme um, of what would it be like to live in a world where there was only truth? Can I ask for a volunteer to read this text in English? Once I went to this place, which was called truth, they never went back on or changed their words and nobody there died before his time. I married a woman from among them and I had two sons with her. One day his wife was sitting and she was washing her hair. Her neighbor came and knocked on the door. He thought, this is not good manners. So he told the neighbor that his wife was not home. His two sons passed away. The townspeople came to him and said to him, what is this? He told them what happened. They said to him, please leave from our place so that you do not invite death on these people. An incredible, I think, story. First of all, imagining that there's this place that you could go to that is called truth, where no one lies, where there's only truth. And then what happens when someone from outside of the place of truth marries in to truth and then has to sort of like readjust to life in truth, right? There's a small white lie. The lie that is told is a lie that's like protecting the dignity of his wife. And then suddenly that leads to a death. It brings death into the world of truth where formerly there was not. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts or responses to this. My, my sort of overarching questions are, um, what would it be like to live in a world of truth? Is that a world in which we would want to live in the world of truth? Is that a place you would want to go to? And sort of the secondary question there is the rabbis are clearly trying to associate lying with death, that it's not telling the truth or a lie that brings on death. And what do you think about that connection? Is it an extreme exaggeration that we shouldn't take seriously? Or, or what, what is there to be gained from making that extreme connection of lying and, and death, really? It's just, you know, over the last few years, we've lived with so many more lies in, in the public sphere. And it, it feels like, you know, an accumulation of lies can cause death. I mean, this, this is, you know, kind of an extreme example where it's sort of a benign lie, but they, I, I do think that there are lies that can cause death. Will you, just to sort of say it out, will you give, what, like, what's something that you're thinking of, Suzanne, more specifically? Or, is, or do you feel like it's too political to say? When you characterize a group of people as all being criminals and rapists and, you know, even refer to them as, you know, termites, other subhuman things, that can cause those people to be bullied and harassed sometimes to the point of death. That's just one example. Yeah, it's interesting to think about some of the, sort of the meta question, I think, for any learning that you're doing as rabbis. There's always like the learning for the sake of the learning and also the learning for how might you use this learning in your own work. And so it's interesting to think about using that, this text to talk about something like that, of the, of the very real cost the danger of, of sort of mischaracterization of lies. Okay, other, David. This is Pleasantville. And it's so artificial that his lie was a deflection to protect his wife's modesty. A description of a community where one attempt to 
color the truth creates tragedy is a description of a utopia that's just not healthy. Yeah. It's interesting to think about what is the, like, what is the Gemara's comment on this? Who's at fault? The, the guy who lies or the people who kick him out of the town? Something that also that I just want to like bring back in is a rabbi statement at the beginning. At first, I believe there was no truth in the world. I mean, Aleka Kushta the Alma. What is the life circumstance or the worldview that moves Rabbah to say that, that there's no truth in the world? You know, it's like, it's like this whole notion of on Dean, on Emmet, and on Shalom. You know, I, I want a world in which there's a, the Shalom is a value too. It's, it's not just truth. So I, I, you know, you want to live in a world where there's no truth. We, is that the only value you want to have? I, I, I don't think that that should be the only thing that we, we hold in mind. And that's the challenge. We have to kind of hold these, these various values. Um, okay, let's push on a little bit in the source sheet. So take a look at the next source from Shmot. You might recognize it. Um, so obviously the, the part that we really want to concern ourselves with is What does it mean? The question is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, against your fellow. Um, what does it mean to bear false witness in this case? Specifically, how, if you only, if the question is the, the, the ethics of writing, of giving recommendations, um, how does this verse inform what you can or cannot say? I think that there's at least two ways to read this verse, sort of in opposite direction. So how how do you think this verse might be relevant to the question? I mean, this is a lotase. And so, you know, phrasing it as, you know, okay, so don't, don't say anything that's a lie. All right, I can write a great recommendation about someone I don't really like. That's not a lie. You know, yeah, they were nice. They showed up. They, you know, I like, you know, like thinking about writing a recommendation for someone without lying about them, as opposed to writing a truthful recommendation. Okay, great. Yeah. When we was in Israel during the first Gulf War, got a call from a friend of mine who was a member of the congregation that my in-laws were in. They were interviewing a rabbi who had was coming from a congregation near us, and he wanted to know my feelings about this particular rabbi. And what I told him was that under no circumstances should they hire this guy; he would destroy the shul. It was my belief then that I had to give that to be an aid checker would be to say anything other than that. That I had to be absolutely brutally honest. By the way, they hired him and he did destroy the shul, but I tried. <laughs> Interesting. Right. Great. So I think that the way that I would usually read this verse is I would assume that what it means to, to be an age shocker is to say negative things about someone for whom I should be saying positive things. That's just the way I would normally read the verse. If there's someone who is neutral or positive, and for some reason I'm going around saying like, you know, I'm saying libel, I'm saying slander, I'm saying bad things about this person for some reason. So certainly I think the verse is saying, don't do that, right? Don't give a recommendation that is negative for someone about whom you should have positive things to say. But I think the less obvious reading of it, which is exactly what you're saying, Joel, is it also, you are also age shocker if you are saying positive or maybe even neutral things about someone for whom really what it means to give accurate testimony about that person is that they will destroy a shul. And so there's also that sense of the obligation that sometimes don't say anything positive about someone for whom really the accurate testimony would be quite negative. 
Does it make a difference that this is in a legal con a court context originally? Yeah, what do you think about that? I think it changes the scenario significantly in that uh, the court compels honesty. We have a responsibility to the court and to the community. Be honest, I would think, in a court of law. And in our courts, at least, you only answer what you're asked. So mm -hmm. providing only part of the picture is required, not even expected. And if I wanted to add to it, I wouldn't be able to. So are you saying, let me just make sure I understand. Are you saying in a court, you have more of an obligation on honesty? So outside of courts, you might have less of an obligation. Or are you saying actually the opposite in the courts? You're actually only answering selectively. You're providing sort of a selective amount of information. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> the question just arose because yeah. having studied Acerta de Broad a little bit, I know that um, you know the commentators assume it's in court. The modern commentators uh, today affirm that. Just really wondering out loud if that makes a difference or not. I think another question, I don't know if this is over-reading into the verse, but if the word re'echa matters in this context, if the relationship to the person for whom you're providing a recommendation or your relationship to the person who is asking for the recommendation, if that matters, right? So one scenario might be, you might feel more of an obligation around honesty. How does it feel differently being asked for a recommendation by you know, a close colleague who is looking at hiring someone or a family member who's looking at hiring someone than like some shul that you have no idea, you don't have any relationship with that shul, you don't have any investment in the shul, is your, the degree to which you're honest going to be different? Does the re'echa in that case matter? So moving on to the section two to text three. Lo so the lo as it's normally don't be a tailbearer, don't be a gossiper among your people, don't stand idly by on the blood of your neighbor. So the question is, what does it mean to be a rachil? What does it mean to be a tailbearer or a gossip? And does that even that terminology in sort of the question of um, the ethics of recommendation letters, does that language of rachil, is it even relevant? Is, are you being a rachil? by um, conveying information that you, to all of your best knowledge, is accurate. So let's take a look at the Rambam there. A person who collects gossip about a colleague violates a prohibition. As the text above states, do not go around gossiping among your people. Even though this transgression is not punished by lashes, it is a severe sin and ca can cause the death of many Jews. Therefore, the warning, do not stand still over your neighbor's blood, it's interesting, we would usually say, you know, don't stand by while your neighbor bleeds, right, is placed next to it in the Torah. Yeah, I mean, this is actually the kind of thing I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, here you see where the Gemara is getting it from, that actually it's, it's, um, it's sort of amazing that on one hand, lying is something for which we know you actually can't be punished for. There's no lashes for it. But also the fact that you can't be punished for it the, the, you know, Rambam has to go so out of his way to say this is a great sin and this is a sin for which you are actually responsible for killing people. Let's go on and read a bit. Um, Suzanne, do you want to, will you keep reading for us? Who is a Rafael, a gossiper, one who collects information and then goes from person to person saying, this is what so-and-so said, this is what I heard about so-and-so. Even if the statements are true, they bring about the destruction of the world. There is a much more serious sin than gossip, which is also included in this prohibition, 
Lashon Hara, relating deprecating facts about a colleague, even if they are true. So, I mean, that's always interesting. Like, what's the difference between gossip and Lashon Hara? Great. So the first step that we're laying out is the repeal, the gossiper. I just love the image. Um, I think it's so poignant of what is a gossiper. It's someone who's like loading up all their pieces of information. They're just like, oh, I got this piece of data and this fact and this piece of gossip. And I'm carrying it around to then in- unload them on different places. And it seems like in this description, what it, what is the difference between the gossiper, the repeal, and Lashon Hara? Oh, gossip isn't necessarily negative. Right. Gossip isn't necessarily negative. Gossip could even be like, uh, did you hear, you know, that so-and-so got a new job promotion? Did you hear that so-and-so bought a new shirt? Did you hear? You could just be relaying sort of neutral to positive information, but sort of the, the way in which you're doing it, that you're loading up on other people's information, and then you're deciding when to disseminate it, the Rambam is saying that puts you in the category of a Rashiel. What is so problematic about relaying neutral to even positive information? Why is that? It, why are we in this category of Rashiel? Do you agree that it's something problematic? I, w- I would say that it can be. And, and, and that's because people hear things in different ways. You know, did you hear that so-and-so got, um, got a Maserati? You know, for, for those in a certain class of people or a certain character, that's no big deal, but but for others it might be. Oh, you know, you're trying to. I actually don't think it's negative. I think that you, you create this kind of enmity between people and jealousy between people, and and this notion that well, oh, you know, look, oh, he's got it on his third, you know, friend, or, or or you know, he got his fourth book that he just published. Again, it's the fact that truth is not the only value here. That there's there are other values. I think as I spoke about earlier that, you know, there's, there's not creating more coveting, that there's not denying the dignity of somebody. So I think that there's, that's, that's the challenge here. Other thoughts in the Rafael, is it problematic or why it's problematic? For me, the, the thing that I think about the Rafael is the issue of power of why are you, why are you gathering other people's bits of information? And why are you the one that is deciding when to share it? If someone wants to share their bits of information or their updates, it's their information to share. But for me, the repeal feels like it's a power issue of I'm deciding, I'm taking, there's a sense in which there's a thievery that's going on. I'm stealing the information from someone else that it's someone's own right to decide how and when to share it, even if it's neutral or positive, and I'm making the decision to share it and give that information over. For the purpose of really placing myself at the locus of information that is not actually my information. So first level is the repeal. The relay, yeah, I'll just, I'll just finish this thought. The relaying and uh, so the loading up of information that could be negative, could be neutral, could be positive. The second problematic category that's a step up from that is Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara is what? Negative, but also true, right? So this is the category, to, to the extent in which we're rendering, rendering how does the Rambam apply to our question around the ethics of recommendations? This is actually the question that we're wondering about because it's, I might be saying, I'm saying things that are negative, but I'm also saying, but they're true. And so the question is, does your recommendation fall under the category of Lashon Hara? Because at the end of the day, they're negative, but I can stand by it and be justified and say they're true. And then the third category, which we're not going to read in depth, is the category, what is the language that the Rambam used for it? 
aval haomer sheker nikremo tishimra. And then the third category, and per, you know, the most harmful category of speech, is the person who's not only you know talking about someone else, but actually the things that they're saying are lies. But I think for us, the the categories that we're most con- obviously that's bad. Don't do that. But for us, I think the categories that are sort of the, that we're most concerned with right now is the category of the gossiper, the neutral to positive, and the category of the lishon um, hara. What I'm saying is true, but it is in fact negative. Okay, Mark, what 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 do you have on? Well, I only wanted to um, jump on what you said about the issue of power and that uh, one who goes around gossiping, it could also be for purposes of self-magnification. Look at what I know. Right. And then I'm connected. I'm whatever. Right. Yeah. Okay. So based on the Rambam, how do we feel about recommendations if you only have the Rambam? I think there is an issue of the use to which the information is to be put. Like, I'm so sorry, I don't remember who it was who said that they had to tell a congregation not to hire a certain rabbi because they would destroy the congregation. I mean, you could, the Rambam might put that in the category of Loshon Hara, but it's kind of not really because you're, you're actually giving very helpful information to that congregation. I mean, it's a so warning, I was just trying to think if the word tochacha could possibly apply. I don't think it's really tochacha, but it's there's a, there's got to be a helpful category into which that goes. Right, but going back to um, the verse, don't be a gossiper, don't stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. The way the Rambam was understanding that is don't be a liar because the person who is a liar is responsible for shedding the blood of your neighbor. The other way of understanding that is don't not tell the truth because sometimes not telling the truth is actually the thing that leads to spilling blood. Sometimes if you are not honest, that is actually the thing that is going to be standing idly by the blood of their neighbor. So what is the thing that causes the spilling of the blood? Is it telling the lie that causes the spilling of the blood because you're ultimately harming someone? Or is it actually not telling the truth because then you're allowing somebody to fall in whatever the pitfall is they're going to fall in. So I think your question, Suzanne, of how does intention play into Lashon Hara, giving the same exact information, but does my intention affect whether or not it's categorized as Lashon Hara? If I'm doing it for the sake of my own ego, if I'm doing it for the sake of deprecating, if I'm doing it for any of those negative reasons, or if I'm doing it like L'Shem Shemayim something, does that make it better? So on that question, I want to move into the next text by um, Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler. Can I have someone to read that text, either Hebrew or English? Those things that match the will of Hashem and falsehood is those things which oppose the will of Hashem. What sense do you make of that? What does that mean? Suddenly we seem to have a subjective definition of truth and falsehood. I would have thought that truth is what is true and falsehood is what is false. And now suddenly we're beginning to introduce this category. We're beginning to redefine, well, what exactly is true and what exactly is false? It seems like there's some definition of true. Now we have to figure out what this means, but it seems like what is true is not necessarily what is true, but it's the thing that ultimately matches up with the will of God. And so now you have a problem because you have to figure out, well, what's the will of God? But it seems like depending on what the will of God is, that might affect the truth of something. And depending on what the will of God is, that might affect whether something actually is false. So let's read on to figure out what exactly that means. So Erwin, keep, keep going. So what's truth and what's false, falsehood? At the outset of our education, they led us to understand that truth is when the facts are recounted as they happened. 
and falsehood is when they're distorted. But this is just in simple aspects, but in fact, there are many ways in which the matter is not so. So sometimes it's forbidden to speak matters really as they are, like to recount something that may damage a friend without purpose or necessity. And sometimes it's actually necessarily necessary to destroy it, like when the truth will not help, but rather will hurt. For then what seems like truth will and then will indeed be falsehood because it will produce bad results. It turns out the truth is what leads to the good and the will of the creator. And the falsehood is what leads to the success and the dealings of the prince of falsehood, the other side. Okay. If, I could, if, if only I could figure it out that easily, right? So what's, what, right. So you have the problem there of knowing what is God's will. That's a major problem. Let's bracket that just, just for a second. What is truth and what is falsehood in here? What is, what is Rabbi Dessler introducing? I think in this piece, we've come a far cry from a town in which there was only truth. Truth and historically accurate are two different things. <laughs> I mean, the danger of this is whatever I say, God's will is. I think Trump reads this text every day. I think this text is infuriating. Like I'm reading this and going nuts because I think this is why this is coronavirus central right here. Like this is nothing. It'll go away because he wants the stock market to go up and that's his truth. And it's very dangerous Great. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Jared. Um, Sorry to introduce politics. I'm in Canada. No, <laughs> interesting to me. I'm so curious to hear other people's reactions. It's so interesting to me here. I totally get it. And that this is driving you crazy. I love it. Okay. So let's do Alex and then Mark. Um, yeah. I mean, my, I, I also, I don't know if I was infuriated by it, but I was troubled by it. And, and what troubled me most was the, you know, the ends justify the means of it, which is okay. You know, how do you judge what's true? Well, if, if the end works out well, then it was true. <laughs> and and I can think of so many moments in which you know you, how how many ideas or or truths are thrown under the bus um, to get to an end result that feels like it's it's in God's will. You, know, you you can sacrifice a lot in the name of good. Yeah. Okay, Mark, and then David. Yeah, I'm equally dismayed by the loose connection between uh, statements and reality and truth. At the same time, I think this is a response to what Irwin raised earlier in a way to incorporate what he said, which is that there may be values that are um, also pressing. If I were on the beam and God forbid somebody came to me and said there's a threat against the building and we need to evacuate, I might downplay the danger so that there's no panic. Would that be true? Not in the strict literal sense, but would it save lives? Hopefully. Yeah. David? Instead of saying that it's ends-oriented, I would say that it's results-oriented. And I think like the, the, the observation about you know, the necessity to distort, this has to be inspired by the you know, Kalana'a you know, texts. If the truth is only going to cause pain and damage, then twist it. And, you know, God did it. God, you know, rescued Avram's uh, um, dignity because Sarah didn't talk about herself being old. She talked about him being old. Um, and so when, when the totsaot or the tachlit is going to be beneficial, then I know that that's a slippery slope, but I think that there are moments where it bears tremendous truth. 
There's a um, Polish farmer who hides a Jew on his farm um, during World War II. And the Nazis come and say, do you have any Jews on your farm? Is he supposed to say yes, because it's the truth? Or does he say no, because the totsaot are needed in order to save this person? Right. So that's a great example. That's a great example. I mean, I think I'm so interested in everyone's, I'm interested, I, I just love this text because I think it's, um, I think um, I, what I appreciate about this text is the total lack of clarity and the nuance around it because I think that that does, I mean, I think that it is true that as much as I'm sort of compelled towards this world in which you could go to a town called Truth and like everything is so clear there, I don't actually think that that's the way the world works. Like I think it's, unclear sort of what are the bounds of truth and falsehood and when to be true and when to be honest. And, and there are, there could be multiple truths for multiple people in multiple moments. Um, and I like that this text suddenly recognizes that. I think this does speak to, for me, what Erwin Irwin was saying about the different priorities that it could be that I'm for some greater good um, that I've determined as a greater good. Cause I think it aligns with God's greater good. Actually in that moment, I'm not only makes sense to, not say the thing that's true, but actually I'm, I'm have a positive obligation to lie. And that said, I totally recognize what's complicated about that. What all of you are raising is that that's so dangerous in the ways in which this can be deployed um, in ways that are really um, dangerous. And sort of the question that's there is I like the idea of truth and falsehood being about sort of what, it, what the greater purpose is. And what's really difficult about that is who's in a position to determine them. Um, that's a very scary and dangerous thing. Avi, you just, this morning, with this whole passage on on power and Alexander the Great, uh, what do you do when you have incredible, almost unlimited power? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you use that power. So I think that that's why I said at the very outset, one of the things is Kalui. It, it is situational that what Dessler is talking about as a, as a rabbi for a congregation or a community or, or students is different, frankly, even than a, than a rabbi who has authority and power as a member of the Knesset. Yes and yes, I, I, I see both the why it's important to be able to be nuanced like this, and I actually agree with Jared 100%, having lived in Canada long enough to become a Canadian citizen. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes me think of some of the conversations around Lipni Mishirat Adin going sort of beyond the letter of the law. And that some of the conversations are there. The question is, do people in power or do people whose influence have sort of extended influence or um, people who are looking to to set a a model example, do different rules apply to them? Do they have to hold themselves to a higher standard? And part of this is sort of how does the truth telling and power relate to each other? Um, we're going to look at the text itself from Kitubot and then read the Maharsha on it. How do you celebrate how you dance before a bride? Beit Shammai says, you call it as you see it, tell her how she is, what, describe her accurately. And Beit Hillel says, she's, uh, the bride is beautiful and pious. I just want to share, I am actually, um, this text is in some way um, influenced by Dina Weiss, who also chooses at Hadar, teaches an amazing shir online. And so she pointed me in the direction of some of those sources. So in hearing her share on this, and now I'm repeating her story, which is very funny. And I have a very foggy memory of it, but it was so funny. I think she said that she was like a bridesmaid or something at her sister's wedding, some maid of honor, friend's wedding, sister, something like that. Anyway, the person got 
picked out a dress. They were like trying, they had bought the dress already and they were trying on the dress for her. And she was in that like maid of honor position and she didn't like the dress. It was, it was a, and Dina Weiss is a very honest person. Um, it was like a horrible dress. And so the question was like, what do you say in that moment? Like, she's already bought the dress. Like, obviously you need to praise the bride. Like, what's the point? And so I think she said something like, you're wearing a dress, you know, like that's the, right? Do you say, what a beautiful, whatever the stereotype words, like beautiful and pious as the Gemara is using, what are the like stereotype words you say for dress? The dress is beautiful and flattering, but if that's not true, or do you just say like, the dress is it so that was her story really illustrating that um you know that's the perfect dress for you right <laughs> yeah. it feels like that space i'm i am you are so brave to wear that dress right yeah or or you know i think the other example of this is this comes up i mean i think the sort of more extreme world dilemma is you know you find out that someone's spouse is having an affair do you tell them i think the less extreme is someone is about to get married and they say, what do you think? They introduce you to the partner and they say, what do you think about so-and-so? You know, do you, do you at that moment tell them or do you not tell them? And if you don't tell them, what are the things you say? Like, and so the sort of the, um, the bride as she is, there's like, yeah, you fell out of person. You're that's great. You're getting married sort of, but in a neutral way. Okay. Let's um, okay. David, keep reading for us. So if she's lame or blind, you're going to say, wow, look how great you look. You know, Beit Hillel says to Beit Shammai, you know, according to your uh, position, then if someone bought a lemon, are you going to say, oh, what a wonderful car? Or did you really, you really thought you should have bought that lemon? No, you're going to, uh, you're, you're going to praise it because it's too late. Nothing you can do about it. Based on this, the sage has said that one should mixed or, or pleasant. Uh huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Mixed or pleasant. Um, so I think something interesting, thanks, David. So something interesting that I think this text is raising is in the halakha, in our situation of the halakha of giving a recommendation, we're assuming it is pre-hire, that the hire hasn't actually happened yet. Um, whereas it being after the hire. So is our, the degree to which we are honest, does that matter if we're able to, you know, our honesty actually is able to have an effect, like to prevent something from happening or we're already after the case. And so therefore it doesn't matter. The person has already married the person. And so then at that point you say, wow, you know, that, that wasn't a great idea versus if it's before the wedding or before the engagement, do I have more of an obligation to go out of my way to be honest about it? Where does that play in? Well, one thing that occurred to me is in, in addition to what I think is obvious about Shammai's position, the damage one can do in saying something that will be received hurtfully. Uh, it's also presumptuous to, for me to think that, you know, I know so much that I'm going to speak so definitively and thereby cause some hurt. So maybe uh, mixed with those of other people is maybe you should, uh, you know, be cognizant that you, 
you don't know everything and maybe other people are saying, oh, it's a beautiful dress or or whatever. I actually think it's always easy to say that um, a partner or a spouse, somebody who's coming under the chuppah is beautiful. I, I think Hillel is right. Who are you to know what uh, what's beautiful in your eyes is not beautiful in someone else's eyes? Think about the midrashim about Leah and um, Rachel. That it's not that one was homely or, or 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 one was really particularly beautiful. It's just, in fact, there's a lot of midrashim that talk about Leah being exceptionally beautiful in in personality, and that in many ways Jacob couldn't see that. So. You know, everybody's got their own sense of beauty. And at that moment, that person is radiant. And, and, and so I think that actually is still, I think there's a truth that, that you can say. If you're willing to, to look at the world, I, I know I sound a little bit like that movie, Prince of Egypt, but look at the world through God's eyes. And uh, there is a beauty there. Isn't it helpful that the suggests neither Beit Shammai is right nor Beit Hillel is right, but that you have to view the situation in its context. And maybe that's what Mekorevetim Habriot means. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Oh, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I was thinking that it meant you should just kind of go along with what most people are saying and kind of confirm that rather than being willing to go against the grain of what people are saying, but I like, I like what you said. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to really read that line. I mean, I think I definitely, I definitely heard in that line what Erwin was saying earlier about in terms of giving recommendations of like, I only know the person in this one specific, um, you know, this one specific relationship. I don't know what they're like in all their other different relationships and not wanting to, who can say, I also um, appreciate what you were saying about, you know, at that moment, that person is radiant and beautiful. And who's to say? Beauty is totally subjective and in God's eyes. And um, Lyle, yeah, I think that that's a really interesting read on it, that what it means to have their response be sort of connected or with humanity or the people is sort of dependent and contingent on the situation in which you're in. I think that that's an interesting read on it. I've also been thinking a lot about the difference between, you know, before the fact and after the fact. And... So I've, I've spent a lot of my time working as a chaplain. And one of the things that, you know, we're taught to do is when we're, when we're writing notes on patient visits, you try really hard to just put down things that actually happened as opposed to your opinions about them. And so, for example, if you have a friend who's going to marry somebody that you think is really a disaster for them to marry and you foresee that it could be a real problem. I mean, similar to our colleague who said that they had to recommend against hiring a rabbi because he would be a disaster for the congregation. I think you can say, you know, this has been my experience with this person as opposed to giving opinions. If you can say, this has been my experience with this person. But yeah, definitely really different if it's if it's after the fact. Mm-hmm. Should we let's look at the let's look at our last text. Let's look at the Maharsha on this um, on this text from Kitubot. 
So what does this mean? This means to describe the way one sings at the time of dancing. Like it says later, they sang before the bride. And it says that the song, according to Beit Shammai, is to praise the bride as she is. What does it mean to praise the bride as she is? The Tosafot explained, if she has a blemish, they would be quiet. Or they would praise her for a beautiful trait that she did have. So the Tosafot are actually offering two different ways of understanding praise her as she is. One is praise her as she is, is basically just to say nothing. You know, I think you'd get a better recommendation for someone else or just to be silent on a particular question. I can't comment on that question. The second is to find the positive thing that you can say. I'm not going to talk about the negative thing. I can't talk about that, but I'll find some other aspect that I can talk about. And that is because it is forbidden to speak derogatorily, even of a non-kosher animal, right? And so therefore, obviously, you couldn't speak derogatorily of a person. And the Marsha goes on to say, and further, it appears to me that whether or not she has a blemish, they would not say either praise or disparagement. Rather, Beit Shammai would use that exact language, the bride as she is, um, which is sort of amazing. So now we have three different possibilities for Beit Shammai's opinion. One is just abstain, just to not say anything. The second is just don't comment on the negative thing, find whatever that positive thing is. And the third is literally the language of it's a baby. It's a dress, a bride as she is. Meaning just as she has found favor, in her husband's eyes, the bride as she is, the bride that has found favor. And since it is forbidden for a man to marry a woman unless he has seen her, this one who has seen this woman and is marrying her, even if she has an imperfection, she has found favor in his eyes. This reminds me, Erwin, of what you were saying, that it's like someone obviously finds her beautiful at this exact moment. And in this moment, she is beautiful, right? Whether it's seeing her through God's eyes or through the eyes of the person who's about to marry her. And Beit Hillel would say that one should, and Beit Hillel, on the other hand, would say that one should enumerate her qualities, i.e., that she finds favor, and so therefore they would say the bride is beautiful and pious. And Beit Shammai said, and if she is lame, etc., that is that everyone can see that she is not beautiful and kind, and this is untrue. But can you really say that language of she is beautiful and pious if everyone can? It's so it is sort of so presumptuous. If everyone objectively can see that this is not as true, people are, it's going to be as if you were in public lying. And how could you do this? Beit Hillel responded, one who has made a bad purchase, etc., shouldn't he praise it in his eyes? Meaning that this is not false since in his eyes, it, the purchase is good. So to hear she is beautiful and pious in his eyes. For if you don't say so, he would certainly not marry her. It's, um, and, I, and I think going to, to how do we understand the Meorevet Im Habriot, I think another reading of this here is what we're seeing in that end of the Beit Shammai, that part of what it means to be Meorevet Im Habriot is to be able to see the person in the way that someone else can see them, to see the person on their wedding day, the way that the person is marrying them is seeing them, and to understand that you're the thing that I think is objectively true and I'm right and I have the total right read on the situation might not be true, that there are actually other perspective and ways of seeing it. The dress may not be ugly. Right. I feel so certain. I'm having this major moral dilemma of I feel so certain that that dress is ugly and unflattering. And do I have an obligation to tell you when, in fact, the dress might be fine? The dress might be beautiful. I'm so sure that that person is the wrong person for you. I have such an objective read on that person, but it might be that I'm wrong, that my objective read is wrong, and that that person is actually has all these other redeeming qualities that I'm not aware of. Okay, where do we feel like, so we've gone from a town of only truth 
any lying, bringing about death, Rabbi Dessler and his shades of truth, shades of lying, truth can be lying and lying can be truth. It's interesting connecting to that story. I haven't thought of this before, so I haven't thought it through, but I wonder if the problem with the person in the story in the town is that he wasn't Meorevit de Mabriot. Like he was sort of in the wrong, there was a different, the rules of that town would, whether we prefer better or the worse, was a world of total truth telling and honesty. So he, like he was acting out of the norms of what it meant to be sort of mixed in with the rules of that town. I guess what I want to end with, what I want to offer you is I feel like for me, I mean, the Halifa recommendations is a very specific circumstance that I think a lot of us find ourselves in, but I do feel like the ethics around truth um, and falsehood for me come up all of the time of thinking how much to share and when to share. Um, and I do think that it's a complicated, nuanced topic. And that I hope for us, um, I'm sure many of you, uh, this is this is what it means to sort of be a rabbi in the world. For me, um, while I don't know that this year provides for me any clear answers, what it does provide for me um, when I'm in that moment of not knowing and questioning and wonder of at least having text reference points that I can come back to um, to help me think through some of these questions. So I hope that this can be that for you. Even if we haven't answered the questions, um, that there can be those texts floating in your mind as you're negotiating what is truth and what is falsehood and how much to say. And, and are there times in which actually um, lying might be the right decision? Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg, Jeremy Tavik, and Susan Pileski. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. Additional editing by David Chavinsky. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.